Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-6, Babur and Samarkand. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Mongol Empire, one of the largest empires in human history, is falling apart by the 14th century. Timur the Lame, a Muslim Mongol noble, builds his own empire on the remnants of the Mongol Empire. But just like the Mongols, Timur's empire also disintegrated after he died. The remnants of Timur's empire is divided among his many squabbling descendants. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the founder of the Mughal Empire, Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur. Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur. Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur was born on February 24, 1483. He was the son of Umar Sheikh Mirza, the ruler of Fergana. Fergana was a small principality in modern-day Kyrgyzstan. It was in a region historically known as Bactria. Today, this is a very complicated area where several modern Central Asian nations meet. It includes parts of Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and even parts of China's Xinjiang province. We discussed the Islamic conquest of Bactria in depth during our series on the Umayyads. Umar Sheikh Mirza died in 1494 when Babur was only 11 years old. This was a freak accident where his dovecote collapsed and fell into the ravine below. A dovecote is a type of shelter or housing for doves and pigeons. With his father's death, Babur became the ruler of Fergana. This began a very interesting and very amazing 36-year career for Babur. During his lifetime, Babur would become the ruler of three different kingdoms, gaining one while losing another. Don't worry, it'll all make sense in the end. Of course, what Babur is mostly known for is establishing the Mughal dynasty which ruled over much of India. As we discussed in our bonus series about Malik Ambar, though we call it the Mughal dynasty now, Babur would have called it the Timurid dynasty. The word Mughal is the Arabic and Persian word for Mongol. Babur and the people of his era consider the original Mongols, you know, Genghis Khan and those guys, they consider the original Mongols to be uncultured. We discussed Babur's grandfather, Abu Said Mirza, who was the ruler of the crumbling and disintegrating Timurid Empire in the previous episode. This means that Babur was the great, great grandson of Timur Lang, also known as Tamerlane or Timur the Lang. Babur would have felt more affinity for his famous ancestor Tamerlane than he would have for Genghis Khan. 
We also mentioned in the previous episode that his mother was a princess from Mogulistan, which was a Mongol state that formed from the Chagatai Khanate. The Chagatai Khanate was named after Chagatai Khan, who was the second son of Genghis Khan. Babur was proud of his ancestral links to both Timur and Genghis Khan, who were the two greatest conquerors of their time. This pride, however, might have gone to young Babur's head, giving him ambitions of grandeur. The First Year of Babur's Reign Before Babur could even think about going outside his realm, he had to make sure that what he already had was safe. He had to protect his tiny principality of Fergana from his other rivals. As mentioned in the previous episode, after his death, Timur's empire completely collapsed, fracturing into several smaller principalities governed by various princes. All of these tiny principalities wanted to follow in the footsteps of their ancestor, Timur. The crown jewel of this fractured empire was the capital, Samarkand, in modern Uzbekistan. Whoever controlled Samarkand was considered the leader of the Timur dynasty, even if they had no actual control over the other principalities. At this time, Babur's paternal uncle, Ahmed Mirza, was the ruler of Samarkand and Bukhara, both of which are in Uzbekistan. Babur seemed to have liked this uncle, even mentioning him in his memoirs, the Babur Nama. Babur paid his uncle an odd compliment in his memoir, stating he never missed the five daily prayers, even when he was drinking. Upon his ascension to the throne of Fergana, Babur sent an emissary to Samarkand to assure his uncle, that is Ahmed Mirza, of his loyalty. However, his uncle refused to accept Babur's fealty and prepared to march on Fergana and take it for himself. But along the way, several things happened that forced Ahmed Mirza to reverse course. First, a bridge collapsed, killing a bunch of his soldiers. Then, a sickness swept through his camp, killing a bunch of his horses. Finally, when Ahmed Mirza did actually arrive at Fergana, he found Babur fully prepared for battle, while his forces were too weak to do much of anything. So, Ahmed Mirza had to leave Babur and Fergana alone. Another uncle, this one named Mahmoud Mirza, also decided to expand his territory at Babur's expense. He attacked Fergana from the north and besieged the city of Aksi, one of the cities in the Fergana Valley. Babur's younger brother, Jahangir, was tasked with defending Aksi. Even though several of Jahangir's men defected and went over to Mahmoud Mirza's side, the young man put up a good fight. Eventually, Mahmoud Mirza fell ill and had to withdraw from the battle. Babur barely had time to breathe before Fergana was threatened yet again, this time by Abu Bakr Duhlat. 
Abu Bakr Durhalat was the ruler of Kashgar and Kolkhand. Kashgar is in the modern Xinjiang province in China, while Kolkhand is a city in Uzbekistan. Fergana, that's where Babur ruled, sits right in the middle between these two cities, so it kind of makes sense why Abu Bakr Durhalat wanted to capture it. This would allow him to connect his two territories and create one large state. Abu Bakr Duglat approached from the west, attacking Uzgen, the westernmost city of Fergana. However, Babur successfully defended the city, forcing Abu Bakr Duglat to retreat. Within two months of Babur's father's death, his uncle Ahmed Mirza, the ruler of Samarkand, died. This was the same uncle that had tried to take Fergana from Babur early on. But here's the problem. Ahmed Mirza did not leave a male heir. Babur's other uncle, Mahmoud Mirza, took this opportunity to claim Samarkand for himself. However, Mahmoud Mirza was a tyrannical ruler and he was very unpopular. He only lasted about five months in Samarkand before he died from a severe illness in January 1495. I'm not certain if he died from the same illness that forced him to withdraw from Fergana, but it's likely it was the same. After his death, Mahmoud Mirza's son, Baysungur, rushed over from his little principality of Bukhara to claim Samarkand. All of this happened Within a year of Babur's father's death, Babur had been attacked three times, had lost two uncles, yet he was still standing and still surviving. Now that Fergana was secure, for the time being at least, Babur began to have aspirations for Samarkand himself. In 1496, he teamed up with his cousins, Mas'ud Mirza, Ali Mirza, and Khusrau Shah. The four of them besieged Samarkand for roughly three to four months, but they eventually had to lift the siege as winter approached. Ali Mirza went back to Bukhara while Babur returned to Fergana. Meanwhile, Babur's other cousin, Mas'ud Mirza, got married. It appears Mas'ud's main purpose for joining this little coalition of Timur princes was to marry the daughter of Sheikh Junaid Barlas, a close confidant of Baysungur. So Masud was the only one of these four princes who actually got what he came for. Samarkand again. The following year, in May 1497, during the month of Ramadan, Babur and his cousin Ali Mirza once again laid siege to Samarkand. Baysungur, the ruler of Samarkand, reached out to Shaybani Khan, the Uzbek ruler of Turkestan. Shaybani Khan agreed to help out, leading to the first of many encounters between him and Babur. In this first encounter, Babur defeated Shaybani Khan, who retreated back to Turkestan. Baysungur was now out of options and had been under siege for about seven months. He decided to abandon Samarkand and flee south, taking refuge in Afghanistan. 
So in November 1497, Samarkand fell to Babur. Babur toured the city and gave a very detailed description of Samarkand in his memoirs, the Babur Nama. Here's an excerpt. In the citadel, Timur Beg erected a very fine building, the great four-storied kiosk known as the Koksarai. In the walled town, again near the Iron Gate, he built a Friday mosque of stone using the labor of many stonecutters brought from Hindustan. Round his frontal arch is inscribed in letters large enough to be read two miles away the Quran verse. وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلُ رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ And remember, when Abraham raised the foundation of the house with Ismail, both praying, Our Lord, accept this from us. You are indeed the all-hearing, all-knowing. Here's another excerpt from the Babornama. Samarkand is a wonderfully beautified town. One of its specialties, perhaps found in few other places, is that the different trades are not mixed up together in it. Each has its own bazaar, which makes a lot of sense. Its bakers and its cooks are good. The best paper in the world is made there. The water for the paper mortars all comes from Kanigil, a meadow in the banks of the Karasu, Blackwater, or Abirahmat, Water of Mercy. Another article of Samarkand trade exported everywhere is red velvet. A Sudden Turn of Events While Babu was relishing his conquest of Samarkand, he received news that Andijan was under siege. Andijan, about 280 miles northwest of Samarkand, was his primary base in Fergana. Babur prepared to rush back to Fergana, but suddenly fell sick. As soon as he was well enough to walk again, he gathered his forces and headed for Andijan. But by then, it was too late. While he was sick in Samarkand, word got back to his soldiers in Andijan who assumed he was dying. With the city under siege, they decided to put his brother Jahangir on the throne instead. By the time Babur finally arrived at Fergana, Jahangir was fully established as the ruler and was not about to give it up without a fight. But Babur's problems weren't over yet. While he was in Fergana trying to save Andijan, his cousin, Ali Mirza, who helped him take Samarkand in the first place, had taken over all of Samarkand. So now, Babur had lost both Andijan and Samarkand. With these two losses, Babur had no choice but to return to Khujan in 1498, the only territory he still controlled. Khujan is about halfway between Samarkand and Andijan, located in what is now the modern state of Tajikistan. Once there, Babur immediately began plotting to take both Andijan and Samarkand back. He marched out of Khujan and began launching raids on Samarkand, most of which were unsuccessful. Babur was so humiliated by his failures, he was too embarrassed to go back to Khujand, 
the one territory he still actually controlled. Instead, he decided to try his luck against Andijan and his brother Jahangir. This time, he did win some minor victories against Jahangir, and he captured the cities of Margilan and Aksi, which are two cities in the Fergana Valley. He finally captured Andijan in 1499 after a very difficult battle. However, his brother Jahangir escaped the battlefield. And so, by 1500, Babur had retaken most of Fergana. Samarkand yet again. While Babur was consolidating his holdings in Fergana, Shaybani Khan, that's the Uzbek chieftain we mentioned earlier, attacked Samarkand again. He defeated and executed Babur's cousin, Ali Mirza, installed his own governor over the city, then returned home. This encouraged Babur to try his luck with Samarkand one more time. In 1500, his men snuck into the city late at night. Once inside, they overwhelmed the city's defenders and opened the famous turquoise gates. The rest of Babur's army stormed inside the city. The people of Samarkand woke up in the middle of the night to find a battle taking place. Many of the city's residents, who hated their Uzbek overlords, joined with Babur attacking Shaybani Khan's soldiers. With the city lost, the Uzbek governor fled Samarkand to inform Shaybani Khan about what happened. Shaybani Khan gathered his forces and rushed to Samarkand to try to take it back, but it was too late. Babur's army was already entrenched and they forced Shaybani Khan to retreat yet again. After securing the city, Babur went after Shaybani Khan, hoping to put an end to this rivalry once and for all. The two armies met at the Battle of Saripul in April 1501, and Babur got the crap beaten out of him. This time, it was Babur who had to run for his life with Shaybani Khan right on his heels. Babur made it back to Samarkand and locked the gates. When Shaybani Khan arrived, he immediately put the city under siege. Babur sent several messages to his allies, desperately begging them for help. But he soon realized that nobody was coming to save him. So he decided to negotiate a surrender. Shaybani Khan and Babur finally agreed on the terms. Babur and his family had to evacuate the city. However, Babur's older sister, Kanzada Begum, had to stay back and marry Shaybani Khan. She remained with Shaybani Khan until his death many years later, after which she returned to live with Babur. Destitution Once again, Babur had lost Samarkand. His small group left Samarkand in July 1501 and headed towards Tashkent, about 154 miles northeast, where his mother's family ruled. As they traveled, several other members of his family joined him. Babur was only 18 years old, and this was a very depressing and trying time for him. But he couldn't wallow in self-pity since Shaybani Khan was still in hot pursuit, their peace agreement notwithstanding. 
They finally made it back to Tashkent, where Bobwood had to live under the authority of his maternal uncle, who was the ruler. Babur describes his humiliation in his memoirs, the Babur Nama. During my stay in Tashkent, I endured much poverty and humiliation. I had no country or hope of one. Most of my retainers dispersed. Those who remained were unable to move about with me because of their destitution. We also see that Babur was very eager to strike out, seek his own fortune, and make a name for himself. Once again, from the Babur Nama. This uncertainty and want of house and home drove me at last to despair. I thought, it would be better to go off by myself than to live in such misery. Better to go as far as my feet can carry me than for others to see me in such poverty and humiliation. Having settled on going to China, I resolved to head off on my own. From my childhood up, I had wished to visit China, but had not been able to manage it because of the responsibilities of ruling and other obligations. Now, sovereignty itself was gone, and my mother, for her part, was reunited with her stepmother and her younger brother. The hindrances to my journey had been removed. This all led to Babur petitioning his uncles to help him against Shaybani Khan. He warned them the Uzbek warlord may try to take their territory next. It was his uncle, Kichik Khan, the ruler of Mongolistan, who agreed to help Babur with his own Mongol troops. With this new army, Babur again started reclaiming pieces of his lost realm in 1503. He began by capturing Marjalan, about 133 miles east of Tashkent. Before long, Babur had captured all of the citadels and fortresses around Andijan, though he did not yet control the city itself. He made several attempts to take Andijan, but none of them were successful. And in another plot twist, his uncle Kichik, who had provided the troops, claimed that all of these places that Babur had just captured belonged to him. His uncle said he needed them to establish a base to fight Shebani Khan if he ever did invade. Ironically, Kichik would wind up losing these areas fairly soon anyway. After all of this effort, planning, and fighting, Babur did not get Andijan, nor did he get Samarkand. All he had left was Oxy. And soon, he lost that as well. Shebani Khan brought his army and attacked Oxy, forcing Babur to flee. He wound up in Tashkent, living with his uncle yet again. Now, Babur had nothing. Nonetheless, he used the next four months living with his uncle to build a small band of about 300 soldiers. In June 1504, Babur and his band headed towards Khorasan in search of new adventures. We'll continue Babur's story in the next episode. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. 
If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 6. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhalab ibn Abi Sufra died in 82 AH, and his son Yazid becomes governor of Khorasan. With the death of Ibn al-Ash'ath, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf has defeated all of his rivals in Iraq. There is another rebel, Musa ibn Abdullah, based in Tirmiz, who has already defeated one Umayyad army. And with that, let's continue our story of the Umayyad Caliphate. So, let's briefly go back to 84 AH. Just want to remind you of what we discussed in a previous episode. We mentioned how Muhalab's son, the current governor of Khorasan, Yazid ibn Muhalab, captured the fortress of Nizak in Badris. Bardis is known as Bactria in Greek and is often called Tokharistan today. This region is currently divided between the modern states of Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, where those three countries come together. The ruler of this fortress that Yazid ibn Muhalab captured, his name was Nizak, he appears to have been a pagan warlord who loved this fortress so much that he, that he even prostrated to it. Well, Yazid ibn Muhalab also loved the fortress, which led him to want to capture it. So let's discuss how Yazid ibn Muhalab eventually captured this fortress. Yazid ibn Muhalab, as I mentioned, he wanted the fortress, and so he had spies watching the pagan warlord, Nizak, watching Nizak's movements. One day, when Nizak went out on campaign, the spies reported back to Yazid ibn Muhalab that Nizak had left, and so Yazid ibn Muhalab took this time to attack the fortress. When Nizak heard what was going on, he suspended his campaign and rushed back to the fortress and the two sides began fighting. And Yazid managed to take over the fortress. After Yazid ibn Muhalab had control of the fortress, he sent a message to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf down in Iraq informing him of the conquest. 
Yazid Scribe, who wrote this letter, was a very eloquent man named Yahya ibn Ya'amara. As we mentioned in season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, we mentioned that Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was also a very eloquent speaker and a very eloquent writer. When Hajjaj ibn Yusuf received Yazid's message, he knew right away that Yazid did not write it. So he wrote back to Yazid. He was very impressed with the eloquence of the letter. He wrote back to Yazid and ordered him to send his scribe, whoever that, scri- that man was who wrote this message, send him down to Iraq so Hajjaj could meet him. Yazid obeyed orders and sent Yahya down to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, and they had an interesting conversation. I'm going to read it and quote straight from Tariq Tabari. The story begins with Hajjaj ibn Yusuf questioning Yahya ibn Ya'amar. Hajjaj said, Where were you born? He, that is Yahya, replied, In Allah was. Hajjaj replied, And this eloquence. Yahya replied, I memorized the speech of my father, who was an eloquent man. Hajjaj then said, Now tell me, does Anbasa ibn Sa'id make grammatical mistakes? Yahya replied, Yes, often. Hajjaj went on to ask, And so and so? Yahya replied, Yes. Then Hajjaj said, Tell me about myself. Do I make grammatical mistakes? Yahya replied, Yes, you make a barely perceptible mistake. You add a letter and you drop a letter. You also say inna instead of anna and anna instead of inna. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf then said, I'll give you three days. If, after three days, I find you in Iraqi territory, I will kill you. Yahya then returned to Khorasan. So I hope that sheds some light on the conceit of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. He was evidently a very arrogant man and didn't take too kindly to even the smallest of criticisms. At some point in time in 85 AH, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf decided to dismiss Yazid ibn Muhalab as governor of Khorasan. And there are several stories regarding his reasoning for, do, for doing so, and we'll go through all of them. But let's first get some basic background regarding the relationship between Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and Yazid ibn Muhalab, the current governor of Khurasan. 